Good day again, everyone. We're going into a new sermon series now. Uh, this one we're calling Respectable Sins and Neglected Virtues. It does just mean we're going to be jumping around the Bible a little bit. So if you've got Colossians chapter 3 open, but if you did have your finger or your outline or something in the uh, Isaiah passage as well, uh, we'll be going there later on. But you'll also find following along in the outline. It would be a great help just because we'll jump around a little bit. But now I'll pray. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy it is to meet together as your people uh, and to think about how we live our lives for your glory and your service. And so as we think on this uh, difficult topic of thinking about sin in our life and how we deal with it, help us to be honest, help us to be open to your word challenging us and help me also to teach your word clearly and faithfully. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't suppose you've ever heard of a guy called John Darwin. Uh, there's no reason you would have heard of him. Not Charles Darwin, John Darwin. Uh, there's no reason you would have heard of him. But he was an English school teacher who died in a canoeing accident in 2002. In fact, there's actually a movie about him called Canoe Man. So there you go. I thought they could have done better than that, but that's what they called it. But when he died, that left his wife, Anna, to collect a life insurance policy of £250,000. Uh, and of course, that should have been the end of John's story. But then five years later, in 2007, a real estate agent in Panama took a photo of an English couple who was showing around a unit in Panama City, uh, and he put it on his website uh, just to advertise that English people are wanting to come and invest in, in his company. Here's the uh, photo. I think we've got it there. There we are, there's the photo, and someone in England saw the photo on the website. They were obviously checking out Panama Real Estate as well. They saw that photo on the website, and they said, well, that looks a lot like Anna and her husband, John. <laughs> now that you think about it, John's looking a bit sheepish in that photo, isn't he? You, you know. But it can't be, because John's dead. Uh, and so an investigation got underway, and it turns out John hadn't really died. Uh, he'd faked his death, and there's actually a part of me that admires him for his brazenness. Because uh, what he did is he actually just moved literally into the flat next door to his wife and just carried on as normal. Just moved next door and just kept living, different name and all that sort of thing, but just kept living. And all they did was they had £250,000 to pay off the mortgage and go travelling. And it seems invest in Panamanian real estate. So there you go. Uh, pretty amazing. And so in 2008, this is why they made the movie out of him. Uh, in 2008, six years after his death, the law caught up with both of them. They ended up going to jail for six years as co-conspirators and they had to pay back all the money, uh, which is a great story. But why do I share it? Well, we've been looking uh, through the book of Romans for the last few months. And for the last few weeks in chapter six, we've seen this incredible truth uh, that when we put our trust in Jesus, not only are we forgiven, not only are we declared righteous, not only are we saved, but more than that, we actually become a new person. So I hope you've seen this as we looked at chapter 6 over the last few weeks. We died to sin, it says. Our old self died when we put our faith in Jesus and we are born again. We become a new person. And that new person, remember what we saw in chapter six, that new person is no longer a slave to sin. That new person, what we have become, lives to serve Jesus. And it's really, really important to grasp this. That change is not some 
fake swifty like, like John Darwin tried to pull. It, that change in you is not a metaphor. It's not a, a, a legal fiction. You don't just move next door and basically keep living exactly the same life as you lived before you put your trust in Jesus. It is a real change that impacts our heart and, and impacts our mind and actually impacts our whole life. So we've seen this so clearly in Romans 6 over the last few weeks, haven't we, as it asks those questions. And what the Apostle Paul has been helping us see is how when a person comes to know Jesus, they don't say, oh great, Jesus' death has paid for my sin, get out of my way while I keep sinning now and there's no consequences. Paul says, if you think like that, there's something wrong. You haven't grasped the gospel. The Christian who comes to know Jesus doesn't say, oh great, God has forgiven me, I'm certain of my place in his kingdom, now I'll just keep living how I used to live. Paul says, absolutely not. If, if, if that's how you think, perhaps you actually haven't come to know Jesus. So no, the person who's come to know Jesus says, praise God that he died for me. Praise God that God has given me salvation. Praise God. But now, as a new person, now I want to live my new life for Jesus. And that's what we're thinking about in this new little series, how to live that new life. It's interesting, nearly all the New Testament letters have a shape that, that goes like this. They start by explaining what Jesus has done for us, first of all. So the first half of nearly all the New Testament letters are all about who God is, who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and how we receive what he has done for us by faith. But then they nearly always then have a therefore about halfway through the book. Therefore, now that you know all this about Jesus, now that you have come to trust in Jesus, now therefore live like this. And the way the Bible often talks about that therefore is it uses the picture of putting off your old self and putting on your new self. Sometimes it says put to death the things that are a part of who you used to be and put on these new things. Sometimes it's more like clothes. Put off those clothes you used to wear and put on these new clothes that are suitable for a child of God. So I've picked Colossians as one example of that for today, but I could have gone to just about any book in the New Testament. So come with me, Colossians chapter 3. Open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, put up your hand and Troy will get one for you. So the first two chapters of Colossians have been all about the wonder of who Jesus is, uh, the wonder of all that he's done for us. And then he says, look at chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. Because of what you've come to know about Jesus, because you've put your faith in Jesus, therefore put to death the things that are a part of your, your worldly nature is who you were before you became a Christian without Jesus. And then he lists out all sorts of sins, sexual immorality, greed, anger, unhelpful speech. He says, get rid of all those things that Jesus has paid the price for. Get rid of all those things that Jesus has died to save you from. And then there's another therefore, look down at verse 12. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved. So therefore now, because of who you are, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Put off the old things and put on these things that should be the marks of someone who knows Jesus. That's what we're thinking about in this little series just over the next few weeks. But as we do that, we're going to focus in on some particular areas that we're calling respectable sins and neglected virtues. So what do we mean by that? Well, it's funny, or it'd be funny if it wasn't so sad, but when we start to think about putting off sin, we're very, very good at seeing the sin that other people should put off, aren't we? We're very, very good at that. We're very, very good at seeing the sin out there 
rather than the sin in here or, or in here. And so we're very, very good at saying, oh, yes, other people struggle with that. We shouldn't be surprised by that universal human response. Jesus warned us about it so many times. So many of Jesus' favourite sayings are, are, are about, you know, check out the, the log in your own eye before you bother with the speck in someone else's. Judge not, lest you be judged. You know, how many times does Jesus show us that we have this problem? And sometimes as Christians, we can focus on the sins that we think are the really bad sins. We have this way of ranking sin. And we can focus on the sins that are the obvious ones in our world. So at the moment, our world is obsessed with sex and human sexuality. And so rightly, we've got to teach about that because there are people trying to tell Christians that what is evil is good and what is good is evil and that's the thing. We've rightly got to talk about those things and that becomes prominent, but the Bible has a lot to say on a lot of sins that are less obvious and less out there. It's amazing how much, as, as, the Bible, as much as the Bible talks about what we might call the big ticket sins, it's amazing how more often, as it talks to us about how you're going to live as a Christian, it's even more concerned with how you treat the other people in your family or how you treat the people in your church family or how you treat, how you speak, how you think. It's, it's less concerned with the big sins of society and more concerned with the sins of our heart and our day-to-day -day life. And so Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, which I think somewhere in the depths of my memory is where I got this title from, uh, he said this, it's quite long, but follow along, I think it's perceptive. He's talking about North America a few years ago, but I think it applies. He says, of course, this is a broad brush observation and there are many happy exceptions. But on the whole, we, Christians, we appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than we are the sins of the saints. By saints, it just means Christians. He says, in fact, we often indulge in what I call the respectable or even acceptable sins without any sense of sin. If we go on, he says... For instance, our gossip or unkind words about a brother or sister in Christ roll easily off our tongues without any awareness of wrongdoing. We harbour hurts over wrongs long past without any effort to forgive, as God has forgiven us. We look down our religious noses at sinners in society without any sense of a humble there, but for the grace of God, go I, spirit. It's a perceptive comment, isn't it? And it rings true. And it rings true, I think, not just for what he was experiencing in America, but I think it rings true of Christians at any point in history because in the end, we're all Pharisees at heart. And we find it much easier to see the sin out there and judge that than the sin in here, in myself. So we can look at the big sins that our world tolerates. We can pat ourselves on the back that we're not like that. It might be drunkenness. It might be adultery. It might be sexual immorality. Big obvious sins where it's easy to say that is a sin. And of course, we need to teach on those sins because just because they're obvious doesn't mean many of us don't struggle with them. But when the Bible lists out the things God hates and then the things he loves to see in his people... There are all sorts of other areas that are perhaps less easy to tick off and just say, that's not my issue. Uh, things that are more subtle, things that are perhaps easier to just ignore in ourselves because they're much harder to pin down. Uh, so if you look back at that list, go back to Colossians chapter 3. Look back at the list from verse 5. Yes, there's sexual immorality and lust, but there's also greed. And there's also anger. And there's also hurtful words and lies. All sins that are much easier to justify and excuse in ourselves. So that's our focus 
over this little series, the sins that perhaps we're too quick to tolerate and accept in ourselves. But I don't just want us to focus on sin. That would be a very depressing five or six weeks. I don't just want us to focus on the things we we put off. Jesus actually has much higher hopes than that. The Pharisee said, don't sin. Jesus has much higher hopes than the Pharisees had. He says, I want you to put on virtues in their place. So Jesus doesn't just want us, for instance, to put off hurtful, discouraging speech. He wants us to put on encouraging speech. He doesn't just want us to put off worry and envy. He wants us to put on contentment. But like many of the sins that Jesus hates, the way they are not taken seriously in our society, in the same way, our world rarely values the virtues that Jesus values. So if you think about it, who does Jesus say will inherit the world? The earth? The meek. Meekness is not something highly valued in our society. Be meek and they'll tread over the top of you. Stand up for your rights. It's what our society says. Jesus says, no, be meek. Our world doesn't value compassion overly highly. It doesn't value kindness, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love. They're not the things that our world chases after. So each week, for these next few weeks, we're going to think about a particular area. And we're going to think about putting off one respectable sin and putting on a perhaps neglected virtue. That's the plan. I hope you're looking forward to it. Well, sort of, if you're like me, you're a bit torn on it. So I think, yeah, but that could make me feel uncomfortable. So that's how you're meant to feel. So that's okay. But now for the rest of today's talk, I'm going to lay the groundwork for the rest of the series because each one we're going, to, we're going to think about greed and generosity. We're going to think about anger and forgiveness. We're going to, you know, we're going to think about these different areas. But before we do that, I want to lay the groundwork. I want to get us ready for that uh, and think about, you know, in general, how do we put off sin and put on holiness? If that's what we want to do as Christians, how do we go about doing it? What are the steps we need to take to do that? Uh, So what I've got is a few hopefully brief thoughts to get us going. I've got three fundamental truths I want you to remember right through, three fundamental truths, and then three practical helps to help us. So that's what we're going to do. So three fundamental truths to start. The first is... Don't ever forget that the starting point is grace. I'm going to repeat that because it's so important. Don't ever forget that the starting point is grace. We are not trying to put off sin and put on virtues to make God love us. We do it because we already know his love. My great fear for this five or six weeks is that a person might come to church for the first time and they might think that being a Christian is about just trying to be a better person rather than being a Christian is coming to know the love of God shown to us in Jesus so don't ever get that round the wrong way don't ever mix it up remember what we've learned in Romans remember back in Romans 5 while we were still sinners Christ died for us while we were still sinners God showed his love to us Titus 2 tells us that it, Titus 2 tells us it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness We sometimes think laws will help me to say no. Legalism will help me to say no to ungodliness. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work because our sinful heart hasn't been dealt with. Titus 2 says it's only as you come to know the grace of God that your heart is changed and you want to live for him. You see, it's only when you know God's forgiveness and mercy that we're able to live for him. God isn't interested in Pharisees who try to work hard to please him and think they can be good enough for him. What God is interested in is people who know his forgiveness, know his mercy, and then in the light of that seek to live for him. 
And so as we think about sins, and this series is going to be uncomfortable because we're all going to recognise sin in ourselves, the first step before you even think about how to put that off is to thank God that Jesus has died for you, that Jesus has paid the price for that sin. Don't ever forget the starting point is grace. But as forgiven sinners, second fundamental truth, we need to make sure that we keep seeing sin how God sees sin. It is very, very easy to get hardened to the sin in our lives. It's very easy to become blind to it or just accept it as normal, especially if we compare ourselves to our world. You see, I think too often Christians think being godly is being just a bit better than people that don't know Jesus. And so I make, I make up every percentage I use, but I think Christians sort of think if I'm just 20% better than, than the world, that'll be good enough. That's, that's how we, we view godliness and, and sin. So if I'm 20% more generous than a person that doesn't know Jesus, how good am I? If I'm 20% more gracious, 20% less judgmental, you know, our world is miles away from God though. And just moving further and further and further away from God. Our world doesn't just tolerate sin now. It calls sin good and good evil. See, being 20% better than our world is a bit like saying the goal is to get to Cape York and then stopping at Hornsby and saying close enough is good enough. You haven't gone anywhere near the goal. You're just a bit further north than you were an hour ago. You, you know, you see what I'm saying? You see, we will just tolerate sin in our lives if the world is our point of comparison. But God looks at our sin very differently. And that's why we had that Old Testament reading. Flick back there now to Isaiah chapter 6. Come back with me. Isaiah chapter 6. If you go back and you get to one of the big books of Psalms or Proverbs, you've gone too far, just turn a little bit right. If you're in any of the other Proverbs, turn le- uh, sorry, prophets, turn left and you'll get to Isaiah. Or you can look at the table of contents. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah was a godly man. Isaiah was a prophet. He was actually a great prophet. He's one of the greatest prophets. He would have, he would have been hated by the ungodly people around him, but he would have been loved and respected by the godly people in Israel. But then Isaiah came into the presence of the holy God. And look at his reaction in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What's his reaction once he came to see God in all his holiness? Woe is me. See, when Isaiah came into the presence of the Holy God, he suddenly realised just how awful his sin actually is. Out amongst the people, he was probably the godliest guy around. If he just compared himself to other Israelites, Isaiah was a standout. But in the presence of the holy God, Isaiah's sin was exposed. See, the sin that seems normal when we just hang around in our fallen, broken world, you see, that sin has its awfulness exposed when we stand in the presence of God. I need to remember that my sin, when I sin, it grieves God. Even my respectable sins. Don't turn there now, but but Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about anger and hurtful words. So we're not talking about murder. We're not talking about sexual debauchery, you know, in that way we categorise sins. What we're talking about in Ephesians 4 is, is gossip and grumbling and swearing, okay? 
And then he says in Ephesians 4 verse 30, when I do those things, it grieves God's Holy Spirit. Isn't that a powerful line? When I grumble, it grieves the Spirit of God who lives within me. When I swear, it grieves the Spirit of God that lives within me. When I say a hurtful, harsh word to another person, it grieves the Spirit of God who lives within me. I feel the power of that. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And so when we sin, it grieves him. It's just a reminder that the little respectable sins we tolerate and justify grieve God. So we need to see sin the way God sees it. We'll only ever want to put off sin and put on holiness if we actually see how awful it actually is. Third fundamental truth is this. Remember that this is your constant battle. I hope I made this point so clear over the last few weeks in Romans 6. We need to remember that we will struggle with sin until the day we are raised with Christ. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish I could tell you that the moment you become a Christian, you're zapped and you become perfect, but that is not how it works. The Christian life is a battle. If you are someone who has come to know Jesus, on the one hand, you are a new person in Christ. How wonderful. On the one hand, you are no longer a slave to sin. Amazingly, like I said before, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you. And the Holy Spirit is at work to convict you of your sin, to help us put off sin and put on righteousness. Praise God for the gift of his Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, we've not been made perfect yet. We still live in these these fleshly bodies. The Bible says we're both sinners and saints at the same time. Uh, saints in the sense of saved people and so we will always have this tension we'll always have this struggle just to comfort you the apostle Paul had this struggle look at Galatians Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 this is the apostle Paul talking he says for the flesh desires what is against the spirit the flesh is our old worldly nature the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh these are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want I find that one of the most realistic but oddly comforting verses in the whole Bible because it says to me, my experience of being a Christian is normal. Romans chapter 7 that we're going to come back to after this series, Romans chapter 7 is a whole chapter of Paul saying, sometimes I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. And that is the Christian life, this side of glory. We want to live for Jesus, but we fall and we stumble and we fail. So when you struggle with sin, don't think, I'm not a Christian, I mustn't be a Christian. No, you are just like every other Christian. The very fact that you struggle is the sign that you have the Holy Spirit. See, what would be a worry is if you didn't struggle. If you just said, I don't care, sinning's good, sinning's normal, I like doing that, that doesn't worry me. That's a sign that you don't have the Holy Spirit. The sign you have the Holy Spirit is this tension, this battle within us. The Christian life is a battle, but it's not a losing battle. See, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we have to take responsibility for putting off sin and putting on righteousness. And we can deal with sin in our life. Look what Paul says a verse earlier in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It'll come up on the screen. It says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. See, Apostle Paul is saying, you've got to work to walk in line with the Spirit rather than with who you used to be. You've got to work at it. So what does the Christian life look like? It, it doesn't look like this. Can we, I've, I've put some effort into these graphs. So, you know, yeah. 
It, it wouldn't look like this. Now, it, uh, there's a graph we don't have because some people, I think, think it should look like, and I'll draw it for you and you won't understand anything that I'm talking about, but is, is the moment you become a Christian, you jump up and become godly and that's it. Some people think that's the Christian life. But other people think the Christian life is just going to be like this, that as time goes on, I'm just going to get more godly and it's just going to be a wonderful, easy ride. And isn't that wonderful? That is not the reality of the Christian life. This next one is the reality of the Christian life. Where we struggle and we fall and we, we, we do better and then we struggle again and then an old sin we thought we'd got on top of comes back and bites us. And we, but it is an upward trajectory. The, the Christian life is not defeat. The, the, we have the Holy Spirit at work within us. We are able to seek to walk in step with the Spirit. And so, yes, we will struggle, but do you see how the tendency is up? That is the reality of the Christian life. That's just for the people who think visually. And every one of those ups and downs, and there should be a billion of them, every one of them is those battles where we work with the Holy Spirit to put off sin and put on righteousness. So there's three fundamental truths to remember as we think about respectable sins and neglected virtues over the next few weeks. But now as I close, I want to look at three quick, final, practical helps that God gives us to fight the battle. And at this point, I just want to challenge you to not be cynical. Okay, I'm just going to challenge you to not be cynical because you're going to think, Phil's now going to say, read your Bible, go to church and pray. And the sinful nature in you will want to be cynical about that. I'm just, I'm just being honest at this point. I want you to listen carefully because, even that, because the answers God gives us are the same, but I want you to think about them specifically in relation to you with a repentant heart. So come with me. The first, if we want to fight the battle... We must fill ourselves with the Word of God. It's amazing how our minds naturally revert to thinking like our old self. The human heart is deceptive. There is a famous quote, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and then the mind justifies. And it's true, isn't it? You see, we want things here, and so we choose them, but then we don't just choose them, we don't like feeling bad about them, so we then justify them. And we come up with our reasons and we, at our worst, we reread the Bible to justify it. Our whole world is on a journey of that in all sorts of areas, to reread the Bible and justify sin. And so the only antidote to that is to actually humbly, constantly realign our minds with God's mind. You'll only ever keep seeing yourself and the world God's way, you'll only ever see sin God's way, if we're letting God shape our minds through his word. That is the point of that great verse in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's, it's on the screen. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. That is what the scriptures do for us. It's as we read the scriptures that we're poked and we're prodded and reminded of God's picture of reality. But when you've been a Christian for any length of time, something can happen where you still affirm that but you don't actually let God's word do that to you. You still affirm it, you say that's true, and that's good for other people, but you don't let God's word do that. You only come to the scriptures, this is what happens when you become a Christian for a length of time, you come to the scriptures just to look to be confirmed in your views. Rather than coming humbly and actually letting God's word shake you up and challenge you. Worse than that, sometimes Christians say to me, I've read the Bible, 
I don't need to read every day. I know the gospel. I know, I know my doctrine really well. I once did all the PTC courses. You know, uh, I, I don't need to study it anymore in, in gospel teams. I don't need to hear sermons. I want to say that is a horribly arrogant thing to say. And it grieves God. It's a bit like saying, I know my family, so I don't need to listen to them anymore. That's what it's like. This is how God speaks to us. And God is our father. And so we need to listen to him all the time. Sometimes to remind us of what we already know. Sometimes to challenge us in what we think we already know. Sometimes to teach us new things. Because the world is constantly talking to us. And if we are not constantly plugged into the word of God on the other side our minds will not be calibrated for the battle. That relates to the next point. If we want to fight the battle, we need one another. So my second point is prioritise fellowship. God has given us this incredible gift of brothers and sisters in Christ. God has given us each other to help us encourage one another to live for Jesus, to encourage one another to keep trusting him, and to encourage one another to put off our old selves and put on the new Sometimes that works through us directly challenging and rebuking one another. Sometimes we actually need to gently challenge one another, gently rebuke one another, always with an eye for the log in our own eye rather than the speck in others. And part of dealing with sin in our life is actually asking brothers and sisters to help us, actually asking brothers and sisters to pray for us, to keep us accountable, saying to a brother, call me out. When I fall into that sin of grumbling, I see it all the time. Call me out. Don't be afraid to challenge me. Saying to a sister, can you ask me how I'm going with the way I speak to my family? Because I'm struggling in that way. But well before that, that's important, but well before that, fellowship does something more fundamental than that for us. Just by being with our brothers and sisters in Christ, week in, week out, day in, day out, it reminds us, I'm a child of God, not a slave of sin anymore. It reminds us who we really are. It reminds us the ways of the world, that's not my ways anymore. Sadly, it's easier to illustrate this in the negative. And actually, as I've prepared this sermon this week, I've paused at various points and prayed for people who I had in mind as I thought this. Uh, See, the sad reality is, and I've seen it so many times, people intellectually still believe the gospel. If you ask them, they say, Jesus is the Lord, he died for my sins, he rose again. They still believe the Bible's view of sin and what is right and wrong. Then what happens is they get out of the habit of fellowship. They start to let other things get in the way of just a regular commitment to meeting with God's people. And before you know it, every week at church or every week at gospel team becomes every second week, some once in a while becomes, I'm actually embarrassed to go back because people ask me where I've been. And it becomes, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. What's interesting, nearly universally with every person I've known who's gone on that journey, is what happens is the way they then start to tolerate things in their life that don't please God. Because as we remove ourselves from fellowship, the world becomes louder and we go on that path of tolerating and justifying. So we don't just tolerate sin in our lives, we justify it and then change what we say we believe to make it acceptable. And I'm sure you've actually seen this in yourself on a small scale. You know when you have periods where you spend a lot of time with non-Christian friends and family and work colleagues, but for whatever reason you miss church, you miss gospel team for a while, you're not reading your Bible yourself, suddenly out of nowhere you find swear words drop into your conversation because it's just been normalised. 
Somewhere out of nowhere, you find yourself less thankful and more of a grumbler than you were before because it's just been normalised. Or you start to be more focused on money that you used to be and you're always looking in the real estate windows because it's just been normalised because that's what you talk about. Or you drink more because it's just been normalised. See, God gives us one another for so many reasons. But one is to just remind each other week in, week out, this is who I am. This is my real family. This is who God has saved me to be. Last practical step. And sadly, I think this is a little forgotten by many modern Christians. So if you take this on board, it'd be wonderful. The the third step is we need to cultivate the biblical habit of confession. I'm not talking Roman Catholic confession where you come and see the priest. You don't need to make an appointment with me this week. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. It says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, we regularly, communally, together, confess our sin to God here at church, and that is wonderful. I'm not certain, though, how many modern Christians still have the habit of confessing their sin to God in their own private prayer. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. See, I'm not going to, but maybe at the end of the five or six week series, I will ask for a show of hands. But this is such a vital part of the Christian life that's been forgotten by modern Christians, I think. To just sit down regularly and honestly reflect on yourself. To sit down regularly with God and take stock. And go back over the things and confess to God the sin in our day and to thank him for the forgiveness that we have in Christ and to ask for the help of his spirit in dealing with that sin. You know, just sitting there saying, God, I am sorry for my harsh words to that person at work. At the time, it felt really good. At the time, it felt justified. But I know it doesn't please you. Thank you for forgiving me in Christ and and help me to be more self-controlled tomorrow. Heavenly Father, as I think about my day, I realise I've been getting caught up in greed and coveting. Help me to remember I've got more than enough. Help me to remember, help me to be content And thank you that Jesus has died, even for my greed. Heavenly Father, I just have the wrong attitude to that person. I just don't seem to be able to get past the the difficulties in our relationship. I'm sorry for my attitude towards them. Please help me to have a better attitude towards that person. See, God knows our sins already. He doesn't need us to tell him. But we confess them to him for our sake. Because we can't deal with our sin on our own. We can't pay the price for it, first of all, only Jesus can. But also we need his Holy Spirit to help us put it off and put on the virtues God wants in their place. Confession is such a vital habit, personal, prayerful confession. If it's not a part of your prayer life, I want to encourage you, start it now. Introduce it this week. That's enough for this morning. I hope you're, as I said at the start, sort of looking forward to the rest of this series. Uh, looking forward to it, but a bit uncomfortable. But why not, as your homework this week, here's our homework, take some time to consider yourself and actually sit and think, what are my respectable sins that I've been tolerating in my life? But also, what are the neglected virtues that I would love to be cultivating in my life? Think about that before we come back and look at some other things over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we are sinners, You have paid the price through sending your son, Jesus, to be our saviour. So we pray that we would never be seeking to put off sin and put on virtues 
in our own strength. But instead, we pray that we would do it knowing we are already forgiven. But now we long to live for Jesus. And Father, help us to fight that battle. Help us to work hard at walking in step with the Spirit. And we pray as we think on some specific areas over the next few weeks that we'll be open to being challenged, but also keen to grow to be more like Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.